Hello, it's Natasha Turner here, bringing you another and, in fact, my final episode of ESG Out Loud. The ESG Clarity editorial team are well and truly in the thick of it in the run-up to COP28 now. And so for today's episode, we have a very special report brought to you by Mark Allen Group graduate scheme member Holly Downs, who's been finding out what her generation want to see from the conference this year and how the sustainable investment industry can better engage with youth groups and climate campaigners. So take it away, Holly. Hello, I'm Holly, and I'm the newest reporter for ESG Clarity. I've just graduated with a degree in English literature and philosophy. I've absolutely no financial background, and I found the finance industry actually very intimidating. As someone who chose to pursue humanities at university, the acronyms and financial jargon was really confusing. I joined ESG Clarity in the run-up to COP28, where our publication's latest coverage of the conference shows how the debate over phasing out of fossil fuel rages on. I know a lot of people from my generation are passionate about COP, and from my perspective, there appeared a very large gap between the financial industry and wider social efforts, especially amongst youths. I wanted to speak to people from my generation about COP to see whether they found the finance industry intimidating like me and gauge their perspective on the phasing out of fossil fuels. What what has struck me in the conversations I've had is the personal drive the younger generation have for climate issues. This was echoed by Peter Littlewood, who you'll hear from later in the episode. But first, I wanted to get some confirmation from the sustainable finance industry that I was on the right track. I gave Jodie Ann Wang, who previously worked at the PRI and is now a sustainable finance policy analyst at LSE, a call. Here's what she had to say. What we know is that the planetary crisis transcends national boundaries and social groups and economic sectors. It's a common concern for all humankind and for our ecology. And what we know is that investors' action can either enable or constrain positive real-world outcomes for future generations. Even though bond maturities may range from one to 30 years or the average shareholding today lasts only a few months, the impact of the invested investment decision-making today, well, whether that's in infrastructure or critical technologies or fossil fuels, will be what the future generations live with for decades to come. So what are you doing to influence the COP28 agenda and what outcomes do you want to see from COP28 this year? Um, I think a few things that we're looking at, obviously, participating in the UNFCCC processes on the various agenda items, whether that is the new collective quantified goal, um, the work that's being done on Article 2.1c, which is aligning all financial flows with um, a low, low emission, climate resilient development pathway, loss and damage, um, the global stock take, etc., making sure that the voices of the voices of the people who are representing the younger generation and the future generations are centered in these processes. And that literally means writing and submitting our evidence and our thinking to the UNFCCC and participating in relevant um, kind of technical expert group dialogues or supporting uh, youth representatives who are participating in those things. Armed with the knowledge that I was on the right track in my research, I spoke to some groups to see if they had messages for the sustainable finance industry. First, I talked with two global ambassadors from Youth for Nature, a charity that encourages youth-led action and provides solutions to the climate nature nexus. 
Here's what Shani or Gregory from the charity had to tell me. So I think investors definitely need to dig deep into uh, the environmental footprint of portfolios. Um, I mean, it's good to see um, ESG or environmental, social and governance frameworks being rolled out by companies and organizations. But I think investors should also be very wary of claims that sound too good to be true. I mean, we shouldn't buy into or invest in empty pledges and greenwashing just because a company slaps a green label on its product or campaign that doesn't mean it's genuinely committed to sustainability. So it's very important for investors to investigate, scrutinize, and also demand for that transparency and make sure they're putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to making a positive impact on the environment. And secondly, I think it's also very important to avoid companies promoting ESG efforts um, as part of CSR efforts as well, because ESG and CSR efforts, corporate social responsibility, are two different things. And claiming CSR activities as ESG is just a form of greenwashing because the reality is ESG is not philanthropy, but rather it's an integral uh, risk management. And it's how well an organization, not just from the profitability standpoint, but also how internal operations are run within that organization and how organizations are going to be able to quantify the risk opportunities within the ESG space. So CSR is just an extension or umbrella of what a business can do to create such an impact. I think as consumers or academics or activists, we definitely all have the power to influence investment decisions. Um, you know, speaking from the perspective of Malaysia, for example, you can see that according to the Deloitte uh, Global 2023 Gen Z and Millennial Survey, 66% uh, of Malaysian Gen Zs and 64% Malaysian Millennials are willing to pay more for environmentally sustainable products or services, which in fact is seen as something very uh, extremely positive to witness in our country, Malaysia, especially. Um, as, as the saying goes, without consumers, there are no producers and vice versa. So public sentiment as well can guide corporate strategies and by showing preferences for responsible businesses, giving voice to our concerns and demonstrating willingness to support sustainable practices can further incentivize the shift towards more ethical, environmentally conscious investing decisions. What initially sparked my interest in this topic was when I came across the EFRO campaign. This was circulating on various social media platforms such as Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. EFRO stands for Equitable Fossil Fuel Phase-Out and it brings attention to the IPCC 6th Assessment Report. This reveals that the only way to mitigate climate change is to implement an equitable fossil fuel phase-out by 2050. This means that permits for fossil fuel exploration, production and infrastructure must be withheld to achieve this goal by 2050. Essentially, this means that a fossil fuel phase-out must be discussed at COP28. I had the chance to speak with Alexia, part of the youth behind the EFPRO campaign, about why she launched it and the power of social media in influencing COP28 agendas. So the EFPRO campaign stands for an equitable fossil fuel phase-out. Um, and it came about this year, a lot of um, young climate justice activists from across the world, we were together um, at a UN conference and decided that we wanted to work more closely together um, in, order, in order to effectively push for an equitable fossil fuel phase out. 
as we know, the climate crisis, you know, is very dire. There's billions of people impacted, especially in the global south and in BIPOC communities across the world. And so we urgently need to have ambitious mitigation goals um, in order to prevent the worst of the worst. Part of this campaign was that, you know, it's been a couple of years since a lot of us young people have been involved in international climate negotiations and have a better understanding of how that works with the different negotiations are, how to navigate that space. And so we really wanted to come together and collaborate and really put, put in a collective effort um, to push for this equitable fossil fuel phase out especially at the COP28 cover decision. We've gone about it by using a variety of strategy. Um, so we have an inside game, which is focused on a lot of young people are actually focused on following the negotiations, meeting with the different parties, meeting with the different constituencies and influencing through that way. And then we also want to put external pressure. So that includes some of the social media videos that we've made. We've hosted press conference at the SB in Germany. Um, we've also organized actions. And so we really think that a combination of both strategy of, you know, playing the inside game and putting external pressure is the best way to try to get countries and influence them to um, agree to an equitable fossil fuel phase out on the COP28 cover agenda. I think we've seen, you know, through the establishing of the loss and damage fund and through other victories in the past that, you know, youth and, you know, different frontline communities coming together and organizing does make a difference and it does put pressure on the different parties and the different countries and, and influence their position. Um, so we're hopeful that, you know, by continuing these efforts that we will have an impact um, on COP28 and negotiations in the future as well. Clearly, there is a lot of interest from youth groups to engage with the sustainable finance industry. But what specifically are these groups doing leading up to COP28? I talked to Lewis Conan Rowe, a representative of the campaign group called Divest Strathclyde, and Peter Littlewood, the director of a UK-based charity, the Young People's Trust for the Environment, also known as YPTE. I asked them about their expectations from COP28 and what their message for the investment industry was, and here's what they had to say. So we are a local campaign group run by volunteers. It's a completely grassroots thing, um, and we campaign for money to be moved out of the fossil fuel industry and into sustainable alternatives. And particularly, we aim for the Strathclyde Pension Fund, which is a, a very large pot of money, which is managed by a committee of Glasgow City Council to make that commitment to move their money from the fossil fuel industry and move it into ethical alternatives. So we've been campaigning for four or five years. We've made quite a lot of progress in that time. So it, um, when we started, I think this was really seen as a fringe issue that was quite hard to get people interested in. Since then, four councils in the area have passed motions saying they support fossil fuel divestment, and that includes Glasgow City Council. It's now in their strategic plan. All the MPs in the area have said they want their own pension fund to divest from fossil fuels. We got to speak at COP26. Um, we've been in all the, the major press, so things have come a long way. We've not won yet, but I think for a small group of people, it's been, uh, we've come a long way, yeah. And could you tell me what outcomes you want to see from COP28 this year? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I'd like to see more done about fossil fuel lobbying and presence at these talks in general. I think it's something that's been in the news more and more in the last the last couple of years, about how strong the, the fossil fuel lobbying presence really is at these. But at, at COP26, it felt like that was almost in a the largest group present was was uh, fossil fuel lobby and there's a real risk that these talks are captured or um, put into the wrong direction by vested interests and I think we need to put more emphasis on 
the risk that those lobbyists pose and probably put more measures in place to prevent that from happening or to limit the presence of fossil fuel lobbyists. Um, I think there's also a lot that needs to be done in terms of finance as well. So the long promised 100 billion for developing nations to work on climate change mitigation and adaptation, that's still not in place. It's been being promised for I think over, over 10 years now and it's still not in place. That really needs to happen. We've also now got this new loss and damage fund, which is great that that's been established, but there's not much in it yet. So we need to see companies actually pledging to put money into that fund. So those, yeah, those are the big things I'd like to see. What message do you have for the investment industry or climate finance more generally? I think the first thing I'd say is talk to us. So we are a, a campaign group. We're not financial experts. We're concerned members of the public. We're people who have our money invested in this pension fund that we're trying to change. It's very difficult for us to talk to the people who are actually making the financial decisions. We know that they don't always agree with us. I think they might see us as a threat, but we don't want to be a threat. We want to be people just trying to help something positive happen. So uh, it, I think it would be really useful if we could actually talk to those people. You know, we respect their expertise, but we also know that major changes like this rarely come from within. They do require this external perspective. So it would be great to have that conversation and to be listened to. I think there's also an opportunity here for people working in finance to be leaders and not just followers. So most people working in finance who we speak to do, do seem to have this sense that they're, they're not interested in getting ahead of the curve on climate change. They're just going to wait until those fossil fuel stocks become less worth investing in and then they'll sell them off. Um, there is an opportunity to get ahead. And I think especially I'm concerned that a lot of them seem to be operating on the assumption that there will be unsafe levels of warming. So we talk to people saying, oh, we're planning on the assumption there'll be 2.4, 2.8 degrees of warming. And that's not acceptable. We can't let that happen. So we need to be planning for what a 1.5 degree warming scenario would look like in finance. And that means getting out now, basically. So we just really want to encourage people to lead and get ahead of this curve on things and, and not wait. Oh, sort of influence on the COP process, I guess, is kind of localised. Um, but, you know, we, we do try and do things. For example, we were going to be holding a, a parliamentary reception next month um, to raise awareness of a couple of the big programmes that we're running for primary schools in the UK. Um, unfortunately, we had to cancel that because of Rishi's announcements on Net Zero a couple of weeks ago, um, which kind of meant mm. that what was meant to be a cross-party consensus event was going to turn into something that was quite divisive. And we're waiting now until after the next general election, but we are, we're still going to do it. We're very keen on engaging with, with government um, because we see that that's where the big change, the significant change actually happens. And we're also, as a small organisation, working with others to try and push forward the agenda of, of net zero for young people and also sort of climate education and environmental education in general. So we're part of the Let's Go Zero coalition um, and we've also got some of our resources now just about to be launched onto the National Education Nature Park, which is the Department for Education's latest sort of initiative around um, climate education, environmental education in general. What outcomes do you expect to see from COP28 this year? Do you have anything specific that you'd like to see kind of be agreed upon or do you be addressed? <laughs> I would love for there to be some actual concrete binding targets on reaching net zero by an agreed date across the board um, globally. Um, I mean, we've had all sorts of announcements made and things get said, but in terms of actions, that's that's the issue. There's, there's a disconnect between what is said 
at the COP process and what actually happens in the meantime, because it seems like every year they kind of roll back to almost an action replay um, and they're talking about the same things over and over again. And we need more actual concrete action now. And it's really difficult, I think, because of the way modern politics works. Um, politicians are always on a kind of a four or five year cycle. Um, they know that they can do the change if they want to do any change in the first couple of years that they're in power. After that, it's all about consolidation. Um, and because different countries have completely different agendas to do with their, their economics, um, it's very, very difficult to get that sort of agreement, as, as we're seeing with the COP process, which has now gone on for so long with really nothing that much substantial actually coming from it. But net zero and, and you know climate change is <laughs> such a big issue and it affects the entire world. It's something that people really do have to unite over. We've seen it happen. We saw it happen with COVID. You know, there was a big planetary emergency and humanity actually came together and did something that made a massive difference. Um, it just doesn't seem to be happening in the same way at the moment with um, with net zero, with climate change, with the, the genuine emergency that we have going on around us that we see on such a regular basis now in news bulletins. Um, but still, because it doesn't feel like it quite affects us enough, it's it's not causing that same level of urgency. But in reality, we need that urgency from the COP process now. Um, so I'd love to see that. I have to say, bearing in mind where it is, um, and a country that's that's very big on fossil fuels, and a, you know an area that's very big on fossil fuels, I'm slightly sceptical as to what the results will be. But I'm I'm hopeful that we will see that sort of level of change um, coming out of the next COP. Uh, <laughs> Let's wait and see. <laughs> so what message does your charity have for the investment industry or climate finance in general? OK, well, obviously, this is not an area of our, of our specialism. But mm. I, what I would say is that we can't afford to be carrying on investing in fossil fuels. Um, that kind of investment has to stop. Um, we need to be investing in, in green technology. Um, and there are huge opportunities for growth in the green technology industry. Um, and it's something that we really you know, need to recognize. And that's where the investment, that's where the money needs to needs to go in the sort of immediate, well, immediate term, but also into the medium to long term. But the other thing, and this is something that I talk about a lot with groups of older young people, is about the fact that we need a kind of a perspective change on economics um, as a whole, um, because we can't continue with the concept of continuous growth. Um, the planet can't sustain it. And at some point, we have to change our perspective on, on what the economy should be about. It has to be more centred around people and planet and less around growth. Um, we see massive inequalities across the world at the moment um, in levels of wealth. And what we need is something that's, that's much fairer to all. Um, and... We need to come across, come to the, to the conclusion that actually stasis or something close to it would actually be okay, rather than necessarily having to think we've got to push, we've got to make more money, we've got to do more, because the planet just can't afford that. And ultimately, you, you just can't keep destroying the home that we live on and hope that it's just going to carry on as normal, because we're already seeing it can't. Um, it's a massive shift for humanity as a whole to have to make. Um, and I think it's going to take a generation or two for that to actually come about. But I do think it's a kind of really big change that needs to happen. And the more that those conversations start happening now, 
the more people are going to think about it, maybe come round to the idea of it at some point in the next sort of decade or two, um, that it's a really important thing to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, I'm as bad as anybody I consume. Um, and it's really, really difficult to, to stop that. It's a habit that everybody has. And we've got to work on making everybody feel that having enough is actually enough. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's my hope for, for the future and for the future of investment um, and the economy as a whole across the world. Uh, it, it's, it's quite big and radical um, and it's certainly nothing that I can do anything about, but um, that's where I think we need to be heading. I've learned a lot from these discussions and realised how important a dialogue between activists and the sustainable investment community truly is. A reoccurring demand from these groups was that the phasing out of fossil fuels should be on the top agenda at COP28, and also divestment of the finance sector from all fossil fuel holdings was the only way to achieve this. With this in mind, I went back to JD Ann, who explained to me the work already being done in the industry. I, I, I engage in this discourse a lot with, with people on kind of differentiating the roles of sustainable finance and climate finance and bring in kind of the mainstream private investment industry into this discourse for all financial institutions, in fact, um, and is that we need a sustainable financial system so as to achieve our climate finance goals. And that is what Article 2.1c of the Paris Agreement is trying to achieve. We've seen, frankly, a proliferation of different initiatives over the past few years focused on addressing the implications of the climate crisis, but they have limitations because thus far um, we see kind of growing number of central banks and financial supervisors exploring how to protect the financial system from climate risks and then capturing climate opportunities, but the limitations lie in that they are addressing the symptoms of climate change but not the cause of it. Um, and what we need to do in order to address the cause of climate change is to rebuild and reform towards a climate just financial system. Um, so that I think that's my message to, to the investment industry is that everybody play a role. And for private finance uh, specifically, investors can exercise the levers that are at their proposed at their disposal. So capital allocation, where are you putting your money towards? How are you engaging in stewardship activities with your portfolio companies and how are you conducting your policy advocacy to to ensure to create that enabling policy environment for the shift of, uh, in financial flows but at the same time private investors are part of the entire global financial ecosystem and we know that neither public nor private finance can achieve um the goal the climate goals that we need so Private investors also have a role to engage with public finance to make sure that um, there is greater scale of, of public finance that are going first, taking the first loss, de-risking, so private, so private finance can be greater leveraged um, and mobilized towards every part of the world where capital is needed the most. And I think this whole discourse around how we get money to the places that we need and overcoming the existing barriers that underlie the current global financial system will be huge and the investment industry needs to know that they have a part to play in engaging in that discourse as well. See, it's interesting because Jodianne and Peter have different professional backgrounds, yet the messages that they told me about the sustainable financial system were similar. 
To bring this back to where I started, I've come away with a reminder that activity from all groups and wider society is essential to make sure we make progress. And COP28 is the perfect opportunity for this. See, I could end this podcast with a summary of my findings, but I'm going to leave you instead with a message from Samuel from Youth for Nature, who says it best. Climate change is a global issue that we can't leave everyone alone to handle. We need everybody, you know, local communities, young children, youth, business owners, board leaders to come together to collaborate and support climate change mitigation efforts. So global representation is very key to um, achieving climate change mitigation or climate justice. And I believe personally that inclusion is needed for everyone to be represented at the decision-making tables since this issue of climate change affects everyone. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'm sure that Holly and Michael and the rest of the ESG Clarity team will continue to bring you monthly episodes after I've left the team at the end of the month. Uh, These episodes, as ever, can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, where you can like, subscribe and leave us a review. Bye for now.